Hey everybody, I'm Anna McEwen. And now for Bob Switzer with the epic narrative. All right, test one, test one. All right, welcome to <laughs> episode four of the of the epic narrative. I almost said the Egyptian narrative because I'm getting so used to saying that word every time I see it all over the place. But we are really looking at an Egyptian narrative actually today. Now that I now that I've apologized for saying it, it is actually a really good segue. We are headed into an Egyptian perspective. Why? Well, Bob, you need to stay strict to the word of God. Well, if you've listened to the epic narrative at all, you know that's not all what we do. We do a few other things. And today we kind of have to because we ended the last episode of verse 10 of chapter 2 where it says, When the child grew older, she took him the Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. The first phrase of verse 11 says, one day, after Moses had grown up, like we 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 are way down the road in Moses' life. Now, the last few times, uh, last few episodes, I've tried to create the environment and the culture that, that the Hebrews were beginning to live under. That the, uh, I guess, and also the environment that the Egyptians were beginning to develop, not just for the Hebrews, but also for themselves, a culture of elitism, a culture of power and of authority. Why? Because all the money was coming in. Remember, uh, even though the Hebrews controlled uh, one of the main sources of income for the nation, it was all done in the name of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh was constantly increasing as well. So we are, well, let's just get into it. From the Egyptians' perspective, just a brief overview, we have a tribe of about 70 people plus servants and workers who moved into their prime breeding grounds. And in these prime breeding, breeding grounds, they took over one of the number one exports assets of Egypt. They went in and took on the trade and the breeding of livestock. And then from there, over the you know the hundred or so years from there, they also expanded into building their own city, expanding into villages, doing agriculture, working with uh, trade routes, not only land trade routes, but also um, seafaring uh, trade routes because they were right there in the delta. The boats came up and down the river. They, they, they were not just in a prime spot because, well, they had water and food during a famine. They were in a prime spot for literally everything that flowed in and out of Egypt. Not that, not that they were the only spot, but they were a prime spot for everything that came in and out of Egypt. So they took on quite a role. And I would imagine they started to, I mean, it would have been very natural to take on a very mm, better than you are attitude because they were, they were in charge of so many things. Now, we've talked about it over the last couple of weeks, the fact that the Egyptians started to shift that mindset and turn it into a slave mindset. And that took a lot of years 
that happens over a lot of time, about seven generations now that have been in Egypt, they've been working through this process. They start out in a great spot. They have incredible um, influence, authority, uh, impact in the nation, and seven generations later, they're pretty much a slave nation who, who exists in order to please their masters so that they don't lose what little they still have in the country. Because, why? They don't have anywhere to go. They have nowhere to go. And what else have they done? Well, from Jacob's first arrival, seven generations ago, they've never integrated into the culture of Egypt. Not only have they never integrated, they kept multiplying. We dealt with that pretty pretty significantly in the last episode. They seem to have a single God that they worship. They have their own priests. They have their own elders. They don't have a single ruler, which is probably one of the main reasons why they haven't rebelled yet, is because the elders were always willing to compromise freedom in exchange for safety, in exchange for um, comfort. And that's something that we need to constantly ask ourselves internally. Am I giving up my freedoms in order to be safe and comfortable. We often love to read quotes of, of um, you know, amazing what we would call patriots here in America, but people that we consider, uh, you know, amazing because they stood up. But what were they willing to risk? Most of the time, they were willing to risk it all. Or, in some cases, they had lost it all in the name of something that they believed in. And that's something that leadership does. That's something men and women of vision, that's, a, that's what they do. You know, there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of people I know who claim to be people of vision, and yet when they're, they're struck with the idea of losing their freedom or losing their comfort or losing their safety, they suddenly change their vision and they no longer are willing to, you know, to be all in. Why is that? Because they probably weren't really good leaders. They were fine leaders. Maybe they were adequate leaders. But they didn't really have a vision that they truly believed in. Well, Israelites or Hebrews at this point were feeling the same sort of thing. And they were living the results of that sort of thing. Uh, that sort of leadership or lack thereof for now hundreds of years. Or at least a hundred years. Seven generations. That's a long time. That's a long time. They have uh, they they worship this one God again. Something Egypt never really understood. I mean, they they were fine with it. They weren't like against it. But now it's become a point of contention. You won't worship our gods. You don't celebrate our religious holidays. Uh, you don't even seem to want to. So the Egyptians have pretty much labeled them as outsiders, migrants, immigrants refugees, leeches, threats, inferior, ignorant. They, they have all kinds of reasons to, to have justified what they've done to this nation. Now, I'm not, I do not, um, other than this emotional uh, part of the way that they felt toward them, uh, that's the only line I'm trying to illustrate here. I'm, I do know that the circumstances are vastly different. 
But when I look at the emotions that the Egyptians were feeling toward the Hebrews, I think of it very similar to the uh, early Americans, what they felt toward the Native Americans. Now, again, I know circumstantially, we turn them into, you know, reservationists or whatever. We, we signed contracts with them that they did not understand. The idea of borders was something that was, I don't even think it was in their language. The idea that you could only go so far in a certain area. Like they were just a completely different culture. But we, we look back on our history and we say, wow, we felt the same way toward them. They're inferior. They don't belong here. We're smarter than they are. We are, uh, you know, richer than they are. We have more power than they do. They don't deserve what they have. We've given them more than what they deserve. They're, you know, they're uh, dangerous. They could, you know, they, they kill people. They're, they're almost like, I don't know, we, we marginalized them and we created a narrative that made it good for us to marginalize them. And so many people in our country just bought into it. We grew up, we, I wasn't there. Uh, I am old, but not that old. Uh, we created a culture where people literally grew up in fear of, of the Native Americans, even though they've never met them. I picture the same sort of attitude being developed and integrated into the culture of, of the Egyptians toward the Hebrews, and a little bit, probably, I wouldn't be surprised if it was vice versa, because there were people in the Hebrew nation that would be looking out going, man, I remember when your grandfather wasn't a slave. Your grandfather and you know taught me how to take care of you know the goats or how to breed the the mules for strength and for speed. You know how to breed like there was all kinds of amazing stories of their not too distant past, and yet now, now they're all slaves, and it's not pretty. It's not only turned into something that they were, you know that that they kind of had to pay a tax on, but now it's nationwide. No one is exempt except for their religious leaders and their elders. And the religious leaders are kept exempt from the Egyptians' perspective in order to keep that hierarchy, hierarchical difference. They wanted to create separation so that, so that there would be a sense of those people have a, you know, a good relationship with our masters. We need to make sure to obey them because if they say something bad about us, to their ma- to our masters, we're in trouble. And when the when the elders would you know be pressed to go speak to the to the Egyptian uh, rulership, whomever they were, the head taskmaster, the 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 leader of of whatever, they did so with with the idea that if they could garner some favor, it would continue to give them. Um, authority amongst the people. And the Egyptians used that to their advantage, as any good dictator would. I mean, we have stories of that in our own um, slavery stories in our, in, the, in our nation, where within the plantational system, we would take slaves and we separated them out. Some people believe that's where racism started here in this country, is that they, there, were, there were, you know, white slaves and, and African slaves and I'm not saying this was universal, but some say that the, they, they purposely pulled white slaves out and turned them into, in essence, supervisors 
for the sake of creating distance so that the slaves would not mount up a, a rebellion against them. They did the same with black slaves, uh, African slaves as well. They, they would take them and separate them. They would create multiple tiered systems so that they would not feel unified in their suffering. And I would have no doubt that the Egyptians knew how to do that as well. And they used the religious leaders and they used the elders and their families to, to create tiers of, uh, not to, well, I'm sure people cried, but I meant uh, layers, a <laughs> hierarchical system in which there were, there were people who, even though you were a Hebrew, they kind of still felt like you were in charge of them and that you were you were kind of their go-between, but technically they worked for you and you worked for the Egyptians. It was, it was a complex system and, and one that often we don't think about, which is why I'm kind of belaboring the point, because this is the culture of the time in which Moses was born. So the, you know, the Egyptians kind of consider themselves uh, justified and morally correct when they ultimately enslaved the entire nation. And like I said, it probably took them a hundred years to do this. So Moses's parents, we talked about them last time, Moses's parents had attempted to separate, to not have any more children. They had a son and a daughter, but they ended up coming back together. And they, in essence, deceived, well, they did deceive. They, they rebelled. They rebelled against the system. They put their fist up to the man. We are not going to comply. We are going to make babies. And they did. And then a boy came out. And they kept it hidden. And, and again, it was probably easier because the wife was a midwife. But, but still, at three months, something happened. We, something shifted at three months. And I can, you know, made the guess that there was some sort of mandatory inspection that the, at three months they were like, okay, now we got to hide this baby somewhere else because it would not have been unusual to, to breastfeed a baby up to two years old. But they hid the baby at three months, started hiding the baby. It could have been for a day, it could have been for a week, could have been for months, we don't know. But they started hiding him at three months. Something shifted and they said, okay, we can't risk it anymore. And again, do I blame them? No. Would I take every means possible to protect my child? Yes. Would I, would I think to myself, well, what happens if I never see them again? That would be a possibility in my mind. But I'd also think I will find a way to get to my child. At some point in my life, I will find them again. So the parents took a risk. They, they ultimately said, you know what, we probably need to find a way to comply or we could all die. And they, they put Moses out into the reeds. And we went over all that last week. Now, the princess, we get this in verse, uh, verse 10. Pharaoh's daughter, he, uh, Moses became her son. She named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. The princess I know I alluded to it uh, last week, but we're going to go into a little more detail. She was married and had been married for a while. This is according to Egyptian writing. Uh, again, perspective is different, but the details are there. I just, I just want to give you that. Uh, again, their perspective is all these people are, are homeless immigrants who really don't deserve the great land that they're on and... You know, they've got nowhere to go, so we might as well uh, 
and be in control of them. Hang on. <laughs> Sorry about that. Little, I had to put on pause because the air conditioner in the little in my RV turned on, and I, it reminded me of like way back season one when I was recording in my basement, and the heater would turn on in the middle of winter. And this is like a much smaller um, lifestyle by far. And I knew there was no way for my poor producer to eliminate that. So I will do the rest of this in the heat of the RV because I have shut it down. So the <laughs> on to the princess. Bob, Bob, the engineer is over there going, uh, he's looking for a fan right now going, oh, please, please. I'm, I'm, I'm going to die in here. It's like, yeah, you will. Too bad. I'll try and talk fast. We'll make this a short episode. Maybe. So the princess had been married for a while. But she had no son. Now, she remained... This is, this is what she would do. Basically, she remained in her house, in her apartment, in her, in her palace, her part of the palace. And she would, she would be in prayer, and she would go through rituals every day to appease whatever God she could in order to bring some sort of uh, positive answer from the, from the spirit realm so that she could give birth to a son, an heir to the throne, somebody that her father could, could look to to continue the dynasty of their, of their family and their family name. Like this is this is the heart of a princess whose only job it is is to bring an heir to the throne. She's married off to a dignitary and she can't bear a son. So she would be in her home probably all month except for once a month when it was well how should we say this gently in case children are listening. When it was physically absolutely clear that she wasn't pregnant. Yeah, that's how I'll say it. She would finish that process of being clear and then she would go to the to the river and she would bathe. And in essence, worship through ritual, through the ritual cleansing, she would worship the god of the Nile. Now, her little stroll down the edge of the Nile probably came after she had spent her time of purification in worship to the river god. And she's walking along the river shore, the shore of the river, the river bank, sorry, and there she sees a basket. This would have been after her bath, which is probably why another reason why she didn't go into the river. She, she looks out there and she sees a basket. Now, this is a woman who has worshipped and prayed to the gods for a male child. This is a woman whose only, only job in life, only you know, her identity as a princess is tied into her ability to produce an heir to the throne. Dignitaries. And 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 uh, and magicians and religious leaders have prayed over her, given her herbs, you know, come up with oils, rubbed her down, soaked her, whatever, whatever the the latest knowledge was, they would try, and she hasn't been able to produce a male heir. She has gone through all of this, and she's walking along the riverbank, wondering how much longer she could go. 
And again, she probably was married off when she was 13, 14 years old, so she's probably not even 20 yet. But in her mind, will she be able to survive another month of being in the palace? The reason why she wouldn't go out is because people would talk about her. They would wonder. They would see her. They would think, oh, is, this, is she pregnant? You think we should ask? Like, they, like everybody, ambassadors, merchants, they all wanted to know, is there an heir to the throne? Will the pharaoh be the last of his line to sit there? Will somebody else be able to obtain the throne? It was very, honestly, it was insane. And here she is walking along the riverbank and she sees a basket. She sends her one of her servants out to retrieve the basket. She brings it in. And when she opens it, it says she has, you know, deep compassion. The baby was crying. She felt deep compassion for him. She looks and she sees this male. She feels and hears him. And what is what does she say? She she doesn't see not just a Hebrew baby. She sees an answer to her prayers. She sees that the river God has spoken and has answered her prayer for a male heir to the throne. She feels seen by her God. She feels heard by her God. And so this is why when she when she you know grabs the uh, you know Moses' sister comes up and says, "Hey, do you want me to find a?" A nursemaid, yes, I do. She comes back with Moses' mother, take care of him, and I will pay you. There is no question in her mind that this overrides her father's mandate to throw Hebrew babies in the river. From her perspective, this baby was thrown in the river, and the river God took him out of the river, put him in a basket, and put him in the reeds for her to find and to raise as her very own. This is not some weird, like, uh, re, you know, state of rebellion on her part. Like, I don't care what my dad says. I'm going to raise this baby. I want a baby. This is a religious experience for her. This is a deep emotional experience for her. She wanted a uh, son. She needed her a son. Her family wanted the son. Her father was desperate for her to have a son so that the family name could continue on the throne. This child is deemed worthy of Egyptian training and education as royalty because everyone has to agree. Even if they didn't agree, they had to agree that the God of the Nile has given forth a Hebrew male child to be raised as Egyptian royalty to sit on the throne of their country. Now, this is not like a far-reaching concept for them because at some, not at some level, in their history, they have had one other Hebrew leader who enriched their country and saved their nation from, from absolute death and destruction. So as far as they're concerned, and we, we'll go into this a little bit more in the in the uh, next episode, but as far as they're concerned, this kind of fits. This fits okay. One exception is okay, especially one that comes from from one of their main gods, the god of the Nile. It makes perfect sense that this child was thrown in the river, and the river cleansed him, and then spit him back out for the Egyptians to raise. So, all of that, all of that. 
This is all, I know, this is all background information. I know, I didn't, I haven't done much preaching. There's really not much preaching today. It's just information. I, and, and I get excited because I remember reading this. I, I can't, I think I spent three weeks reading this kind of stuff. I just was so in awe. I sat here and went so many times. I, yeah, I would sit here literally in the RV going, oh, I can't believe this. Now, honestly, most, I, I, I got it. I do recognize, you know, I would try and, you know, bring this up at a, at a gathering, like, hey, you wouldn't believe what I read today. And everybody would just kind of nod and go, mm-hmm. well, that's nice, Bob. You still do that podcast? Yes, I do. And this is going on the podcast. Oh, good. All right. Well, you know, maybe I'll listen to it. Like, I, I, I got really excited by this because for me, this paints a much, much more uh, authentic picture as to who Moses was and why Moses was who he was in this time. Now it says uh, in verse 11, Moses had grown up. Ta-da, there you go. He grew up. What does that mean? Well, again, I go to, I go to Egyptian archaeology and Egyptian history and diaries written during, uh, during this time. And basically, although the pictures can be very, um, I'll say they're, they're less uh, clean. Like they're more, <laughs> they're, it's a little rough around the edges when it comes to the way reality, their perspective of their culture is. Like it, it, in the movies, it's ambiance, uh, ob- opulence, opulence. It's rich and clean. Everybody has all their teeth type of thing. <laughs> <laughs> it looks very westernized. But Moses was considered to be, when it says he's good, it meant that he was noble. Uh, Moses was considered brilliant. Um, and one of the main characteristics that Moses seemed to have that was different and exalted him amongst all the other dignitaries' children was Moses seemed to have incredible self-control. Now, I find that really interesting in the particular uh, writings that I I read, which was a diary from one of the, theoretically translated diary from one of the the educators of the time in Egypt during Moses' era. So he was noted as somebody who had incredible self-control and constantly wanted to improve himself to the point where his when he played as a child after school he played with elements of of math things that would uh, like science discovery type of things he he was t- constantly being inquisitive and he didn't he didn't believe that he just needed to know enough to pass a test. He wanted to know why he needed to know it, and he needed to know who came up with it, and he wanted to understand, you know, the next elements. He wanted to know uh, the the nuance. Like he was, he was just a brilliant child. Now I do understand everybody believes they have a brilliant child, and you all, you know, I get that. I had four of my own, and every one of them. You know, uh, I believe to be smarter and better looking than any other child that I'm aware of. And then I had grandchildren, and now you know, <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, it's getting close now because those grandkids are pretty awesome. 
but this is uh, this is more legitimate. He was he was legitimately brilliant and legitimately beautiful and uh, very modest and and controlled. He he wasn't arrogant with his with his intellect because he even as a child understood it, whatever he knew he didn't know all of it and there was more to know. And if you talk to anybody who has more than pretty much a high school education, you and I would say, or a good college education, the more you know, you realize, I don't know everything. And I do think in a lot of ways, seminaries have destroyed that ability in pastors. We train people, most seminaries train people to become career clergy. They train them to lead people uh, in such a way that the people will continue to give and the church, quote, will go on. We don't train people to realize, hey, I there's no way I can know all this. We train them, generally speaking, we train them in theological perspectives, and it's kind of a closed loop. We acknowledge there might be other the- theologies and other loops, but none of them are as good as ours. None of them reach the level of rightness that ours does, and so... We just need to study these things and know the truth really, really good, and then we'll be able to recognize people that are wrong. It's it's a sad, I think, in a lot of ways, uh, pastors are trapped. They they have to stay with the with the denomination and the theology that got them their job, and they can't explore any new thoughts because it could jeopardize their mortgage. It could jeopardize their four hundred one k. It's a, it's a difficult spot, and that goes into other things, and I can talk about it maybe during Bob Thoughts, but, but Moses wasn't that way. In his arrogance, he has focused on the fact that, not arrogance, I shouldn't say that, in his education, he understands there is always more to know, and that seemed to be something true of him even as a child. He constantly wanted to discover more. Now, the princess... When it says she raised him as his as her own, uh, and she he became her son, it's it's the idea that she dressed him as a as a pharaoh's uh, prince, uh, you know, an Egyptian prince. She pretended to be the mother of a two year old. She would talk to people as though she had nursed them. She would talk to people as though she had birthed him, and she adopted the child in every way. And some would say, I would imagine in today's culture, we would probably talk to this lady and start to put together that, oh wait, she didn't actually give birth to him. And we'd start to think she's, she's not, she's not all there. Like there's something amiss in this story. And we, we probably just need to start nodding and walk away. But she was the princess and if she said she gave birth to Moses, then she gave birth to Moses, and nobody was going to argue with that. So she adopted him in every way. And it says that, again, as a preteen, and again, I, I do know all of this is like crammed into the first phrasing of, of verse 11, but as, as a preteen, which they would consider manhood, it says that he excelled in all studies. He was a genius. There were kids that were close to him, and then it was by the time he hit the what we would consider teen teenagerness, they would consider manhood, he started to excel in everything. 
he could actually anticipate lesson plans and he would push the teachers for more. See, he would go home at night and and not only do the homework, but he would start to to research further and realize this is where we're headed. And when he'd show up for class the next day for the lecture, for the for the stroll with the philosopher, he would he would throw out questions or say, Are we going to deal with this? How do we get through this? What about this problem? And they would be surprised. The teachers would actually be be surprised that not only did he understand what they talked about the day before or the week before, but he arrived accurately projecting where they were going and already asking questions about it. It says that they brought in people, uh, you know, not for math, science, astronomy, uh, astrology, uh, language, music. All of these were mandated by Egypt for the prince. They were all mastered and improved on by Moses. He was, honestly, it reminds me very much of the incredibly complicated layers of understanding and and, uh, uh, emotional uh, intellect. It reminds me very much of, of King David. He just, he not only understood math and engineering and logic and philosophy, he understood art and music, and uh, psychology. There was, there was just so much astronomy and astrology. So he not only, I mean, all the sciences, he was there. All of the arts, he was there. Musically, it said that he, he you know, learned the, the music of the day, and then he wrote and improved upon the music of the day. Not that they had like, you know, Spotify and he suddenly was a superstar and would give world tours, but he would play within the courts and and the other musicians wouldn't, would then try to mimic things that Moses had discovered on his own because of the way his mind worked. He didn't necessarily have to sit, you know, with a harp in his hand. He just would think through it and then he'd go to the harp and make it happen. The only thing that he lacked was the rhythm of speech. He had a stutter. Now, maybe somewhat that drove him. Maybe because of his stutter, he knew he had to be better than everyone else because they mocked him. Because because of who he was. Maybe he thought, if I'm ever going to be Pharaoh, I have to be able to speak like my grandfather. It's, it's who knows, but this kid is growing up in an intense environment and he understands what his job's going to be. He is going to be Pharaoh. It says that, that they brought in, you know, uh, teachers, philosophers, trainers from Greece, from Asia, from Africa, and all of them contributed to his training. So he not only understood the Egyptian culture, and progressed in that, but he understood world culture. He had a world view that was that was not only of one of understanding, but one of a, a aggressive improvement, not just of his own culture, but how all the cultures could work together under one ruler, which would have, would be him. That's the way he would look at it. 
That's what he was training for. And when he would speak to his grandfather, even though he had a stutter, when he would speak to his grandfather, he, he, could, he could express to him where he was going to go with the nation of Egypt, how beautiful it was going to be, how, how explosive it was going to be. It says during this time, he, was, he went out on military campaigns. And even with his stutter, he could, he could articulate on paper incredible works of art when it came to military uh, maneuvers. When it came to military plans and campaigns, Egypt was, was not only gaining in the areas of arts and philosophy, but as a military force, they were very difficult to beat. As a matter of fact, it says Moses never lost as a general. His men honored him and followed him and would, and would go wherever he said to go because even though it might be something they never thought of, they learned to trust him because he was so smart not only in the military movement, but in the psychology of the other side, in the worldview of the other side. He understood how people thought, and he would use that against them in the military sense. So Moses dressed like an Egyptian. Moses had makeup like an Egyptian. Moses behaved like an Egyptian. Moses' language was that of an Egyptian. All his training pointed to one thing. You are going to rule this nation one day. But his name, Moses, drawn out of the river. From the Egyptian standpoint, this, this part of his life was, was what made him elite. It created this aura about him. He was one that the God of the Nile would not kill. So deep was his aura, so majestic and, and mysterious was Moses as an infant that the God of the Nile said, no, 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 we're going to cleanse him and we're going to rebirth him out of the water into Egyptian life. See how that was done? Like out of the water, like this was the giving birth, the, the place of life out of the water, into a basket, and I'm going to present her him to the princess who has begged me. I mean, she was also begging all the other gods, but let's not, you know, quibble with the details. All the, you know, I'm going to give her something she's been begging me to give her, which is some, an heir to the throne. But this very same thing that caused mysterial, mystic, mystic, mystics, to be in awe of the aura of Moses always reminded Moses, you are not Egyptian. You are Hebrew. You are drawn out of the water and your true heritage is enslaved by the nation that you are in essence being trained and you are born to serve, to elevate and to expand. And you know what? I, I know it's only I know this is only like 40 minutes long. We're going to end it here. I'm going to end it here because honestly that thought is what we need to carry into the next verses because I think it plays a huge role. You'll you'll know. You'll know when I get there. Next on the next episode, it plays a huge role 
And what Moses does next, and I yes, you can read ahead. It's it's the rest of verse eleven and following through the end of the chapter. It it plays a huge role in Moses's behavior when it comes to yeah every everything really everything. And I know that I know these last few episodes are pretty much like okay we get it. Yes, I know you get it, but trust me, it's a it makes a big shift. And the way the rest of the story goes as well, I mean, all the way to the point where the sacrificial system is implemented. Seriously, meditate on these things until the next episode. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Bob Switzer, Well, and I'm glad you were here at the Epic Narrative. Don't go anywhere. We've got Bob Thoughts. So, first off, let me just be, let me just acknowledge the fact that last episode I said the princess was single. This episode I said she was married. I, I, I changed my mind. Based on the archaeological things that I read, the princess was married. I, I am, I'm more committed to that. She's married and she was desperate to produce an heir. To the throne, and that's why she worshipped. Um, she worshipped at the Nile in order to cleanse herself after uh, every month of being in the palace. She would pretty much just she stayed within the royal circles uh, within you know within the palace. Anyway, I I listened you know to that episode and I thought, wow, it was a for me even for me it was a little dry, but. The information, I think, is it is critical. It does come into play in the future because Moses Moses does see, I think, often sees himself as dual-purposed in his birth, and he understands himself to be special. He understands himself to be uh, a gift from God to his people, and he, in essence, I believe, works from a dual citizenship mindset. So yeah, I am. I'm sorry that I I switched that. I I felt bad when I when I heard it. I was like, ah, should I go back and redo episode two? But I didn't. You know what? Sometimes you make mistakes, and sometimes you change your mind. That's the beauty of the story, and that's uh the only the only downside of doing the podcast for me is that periodically I know I'm going to change my mind about things or come into a different conclusion or lean toward a particular viewpoint more than another based on new finds or things that I've read or people that I've listened to. It's, it's, but that's not, that's not an excuse not to be, not to passionately uh, believe something or to teach something. And I think the beauty of scripture is the fact that it is a narrative and it allows for interaction and for growth and for the potential of more to come into play. Uh, I hope it, it happens for you. I hope that there is information that's laid out in, in, and you sit back and go, I don't agree with that at all. But here's why I don't agree with it. I mean, put some thought into it. Please don't just, don't just parrot what other people have said to you. Don't just repeat, you know, what you read, uh, somewhere. Take it all in. That's why I went so heavy on this Egyptian perspective and you'll hear more about it. Like, the 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 idea of Hebrews being an immigrant nation without a place to go that they they came from nowhere and they have nowhere to go like how that plays into the superiority and the 
and the taking away of privileges and freedoms from them over time, where are they going to go? What's, what threat are they other than if they figure out that, you know, that they uh, could join an enemy of ours and overtake us? That's, that's the threat. The threat is they're already in the country. They, they live around and, and uh, work around one of the major water entrances to our country. If an enemy gets to them, then we are in trouble. So yeah, they needed control. They needed fear. They needed they needed to tax their bodies to the point where they didn't have the energy to to put together a rebellion. And they kept the leadership of the slave nation, the immigrants. They kept the leadership exempt from things so that they would be beholding to the Egyptians and again not join an outside group, not take on a connection to an enemy and and ultimately overthrow the Egyptians. So all that comes into place. It's important stuff to know. I know, I know. I get I probably got no, I like being excited by it. All right. The other thing I wanted to touch back on and I mentioned in the episode is the idea of how trapped pastors get in their theology because their theology is directly tied to the denomination and the then the community of of churches that they're a part of. And if they explore other theology, if they if they even honestly if some of them explore these this information about Moses that may change a conclusion that their denomination has already determined to be the truth of of a particular perspective on Moses, they, they were not allowed to mention it. If they do mention it, it's the people outside the, the denomination, outside of the church body. And I think it's why so many of them end up online and, and doing things that they hope their congregation will never know or that their, their uh, elders never find out or definitely the denominational regional directors, district managers, whatever. Like it's, they're trapped. They are trapped. Now I'm, you know, I've, I've always been in, in, independent churches. So I've never went to seminary. Again, probably why I'm a preacher without a job, because ta-da! One, I'm 58 years old. Two, I've never been to seminary. Three, I teach radical concepts on the goodness of God, and man, that scares people. But not you guys, because you guys are epic narrative people, and I love you. You're awesome. But your preacher, if you're part of a church and you're part of a denomination, your pastor may feel, at times, feel trapped. Now, some of them are just all in because because they went into it for the business of it. They felt, quote, called to the ministry. It's now their career. They agree with the, the statement of faith and the doctrinal uh, theologies of their, de, of their denomination. They've never explored beyond. They've never looked at another option. They've never, and they figure why. We're right. Or why? I have the answers. Like there's, to me, again, dangerous, sad, uh, circular arguments. It's just uh, frustrating. So understand if you're part of a church, that may be something that your pastor goes through. You could be a voice, uh, a listening ear for them and let them know that you're not going to threaten their job. You're not going to, you know, take away their paycheck so they lose their house and lose their car and lose the the health benefits and the dental and the eye. You know, I mean, like it all, the 401ks, like it, 
it all comes into play. It's like, why would I risk all that over possibility of maybe disagreeing with somebody who, honestly, I'm okay with in the end. Believe in Jesus, go to heaven. The rest of it we can talk about when we get there. It's, it's, uh, it's unfortunate because it doesn't allow them to push, to strive, to grow, to, tr- to, to explore. I mean, come on. It's exciting. And I think it's why a lot of people get bored with church and the, and, and the younger, if you want to call it that, generation moves on. Because they're like, you know what, I, they evidently have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. I want, I want to explore things. I'm not allowed to explore things in the church because, well, we have all the answers. Yeah, good stuff to think about. Hey, those are some of my thoughts. I, I could talk about that for days. Days, but we're not going to. Our thoughts are going to end. Ladies and gentlemen, if you can help out, keep this podcast alive, please click the link below. Go to a wonderful organizational organization called uh, Revive the Way. They've opened up a portal so that your your donation to our podcast is tax deductible. You, you will also help me continue to help Revive the Way, train and facilitate uh, house church leaders around the world. Thank you so much for being here, and I look forward to seeing you again next time on The Epic Narrative. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use. You can also reach out to Bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com. See you next week, guys.